as the time ticks, as they say, Tempest is always fugiting. So, Psalm 123, 124, 125. Let, uh, let me read to you um, uh, Psalm 123, page 637. I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. As the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured much contempt. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. Uh, I don't know if you uh, collect, as I do, wayside pulpits. I'm sure you must have them in the U.S. I've seen them outside of uh, churches sometimes. Slogans, you know, they may be on a neon sign or they may be uh, put up on little uh, boards outside the church. Um, Here are one or two that I've collected uh, recently. Outside a very downtown, depressed-looking church in Manchester, England, looked as though it was about to close. What did it say? Most people's minds are like concrete, thoroughly mixed and permanently set. And I thought, what would make you give a blast like that to your community? (laughs) You must really have lost the gospel if you think of it like that. Wow, it was worth writing down though, wasn't it? Or pick this one up in, in Australia. Could have been in Britain, could have been in America. Trust a great God to help you fulfill your potential. What is life about? God doing what you want him to do. Much better, um, this one from England, that's not why it's much better, but it's just much better. (laughs) When you are at the end of your tether, remember God is at the other end. Now that would be a good strap line for these three psalms. When you are at the end of your tether, the end of your rope, remember that God is at the other end. Remember, we said this morning that uh, there is a progression in the sets of three, that it starts where we are, moves through the climb to the eventual destination, and that the journey to Jerusalem is a paradigm of the Christian life, through the difficulties to the city. The Royal Air Force of uh, the United Kingdom has as its motto, per ardua ad astra, which means through the difficulties to the stars, It's not a bad uh, motto for the Christian life, per ardua ad astra, through the difficulties to the stars, because the path of obedience is the path of pilgrimage. Now, why was God's great redemptive work in the Old Testament, in Exodus, remembered perpetually, generation by generation, and still is year by year, by the Passover meal? Well, because the people needed the Passover meal to start the pilgrimage. Do you remember when God uh, in Exodus 12 said, gave them instructions about the sacrifice of the, of the lamb whose blood was to be put on the lintels and the doorposts of their house, he said that the lamb, its flesh, was to be consumed by the family within. Exodus 12:11, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. And what they're learning there is that salvation, rescue by God through the uh, Passover, is in fact a call to pilgrimage. To eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt and your sandals on and with your staff is ready to go on a journey. And all of God's saving work starts us on a pilgrimage. 
That's how you know you're a Christian, because you're a pilgrim person. If somebody says to me, oh, I've truly been uh, saved and redeemed by Christ, the evidence of that will be their obedient pilgrimage. Now, this song of three units, I think, takes us along that uh, progress. The unit begins in Psalm 123 with the present problems, which is rather like Psalm 120, but a little bit uh, different because... Here is a believer in the real world world who is under pressure, but it's also, I think, much more likely that verses 3 and 4 are referring to Israel as the people of God in the environment of pressure. For the plurals are in verses 3 and 4. We've endured much contempt, much ridicule, much contempt from the arrogant, O Lord. And so I think we're to see here not so much the individual who's stirring himself to leave Meshech and the tents of Kedar to go to Jerusalem, but the people of God who are under constant threat, living in uh, an experience of hostility, which is expressed in contempt, verse 3, and ridicule, verse 4. So that's a norm for God's people. And I think it's interesting that these psalms are both corporate and individual. And there is a sense in which we as churches need to encourage one another in this pilgrimage to recognize that there is a corporate um, experience of being the people of God in our generation and in our context in which we need to help one another to stand firm and to keep pressing on uh, in the pilgrimage. When we get to Psalm 125, the third of our psalms, we read in verse 3a, the scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. You see, although we're enduring contempt and arrogant pride against us, by the time we get to the resolution of the little trio, that is 123 to 125, there is the assurance undergirded by these convictions that the Lord will not allow the wicked to rule the land, but that he will keep his righteous people, keep them righteous and keep them trusting. And of course, the key to that is verse 1 of 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. So how does this beleaguered church, this pressurized group of Christians, to use New Testament terminology, become the secure Mount Zion that cannot be shaken in 125? And the answer, I think, is by learning the lessons of 124, which is a psalm which uh, looks back to what God has done in the confidence that he will again do this because he is dependable and will keep his promises. Well, now, that's the overview of the unit. Each psalm has a situation where the obedient pilgrim is up against it, where the church is facing pressure and hostility. But in each psalm, the Lord is revealed as the total resource to meet every need. He comes when we feel that we can't take any more, that the pressure of living for God is just too much for us and too great for us and the demands are too heavy for us and we're about to go under... What do we actually find in that state in our pilgrimage? We find Psalm 123, a God who is above us. Psalm 124, a God who is beside us. 
and Psalm 125, a God who is round about us. So a God who is above us so that he can hear and answer our prayer, a God who is beside us, at our side and on our side to defeat the most threatening enemy, and a God who is round about us to provide stability and protection. Now, let's look at how that works out in real experience. The answer is always in the text. Uh, The Bible interprets the Bible, and if you will get stuck into the text and really read it with your antennae up, asking God to give you wisdom and understanding, then God will, in his word, show us how we are to interpret that and how we are to relate it to our lives. Application of the Bible is not something you bring in from the outside. You get it from the context of the passage. So if you're a preacher and you want to apply the Bible well to other people, it's context that gives you application. The more you work at the context and see what did it mean to them then, why did he say it to them in that situation, the more you will understand how it relates to us now. So we don't have to find relevance and import it. We have to read the text and expound the context in order to find the application. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that God never exhorts us without telling us how to do it. That's what I love about the Bible. He never says, go and do it and try and work out. He always tells us how. That's why he never commands without producing a promise. If you go right back to the beginning of his dealings with Abraham, at the start of his pilgrimage, back in Genesis 12, you find that the command and the promise go hand in hand. And if we learn that in our Christian lives, it will save us from many problems and many difficulties. Because Christianity is believing the promise and believing it so that you obey the command. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Believe the promise and you will obey the command. If you're not obeying the command, it's because you don't believe the promise. That's why we don't obey the commands. And the promise and the command always goes together. So God says to Abraham, command, leave your country and your people and go, promise, to the land that I will show you. Okay, so it doesn't come a map through the door in the mail. This is where you're to go, Abraham. You're just to get up and go and I will show you, promise. Now, you're not going to get up and do that, Abraham, and obey the command unless you believe the promise. If I'm sitting there with Abraham and his wife in their kitchen, when God speaks to them this way, and God says, now Abraham and Mrs. Abraham, Sarah, I want you to get up and go, they might well say, but where to and how do we know? To the land that I will show you. But Lord, can we be sure that you will show me? Yes, because I've told you. Believe my promise and you will obey the command. Now, really, that is the nature of pilgrimage. And when it's tough and your faith is under so much pressure that the command seems to contradict with the promise, you still go on doing both. Do you remember Abraham's story? Uh, This is not a sidetrack. This really illuminates the text in front of us. Abraham's story, you remember, was part of the command was that he had to be ready and willing to sacrifice his son Isaac at Mount Moriah. And uh, he must have been totally perplexed by that. This son whom God had now given to him, who was the son of the covenant, in whom all the promises of God were going to find their fulfillment, Isaac, the one that he'd waited for for so long. Now he's told to go and sacrifice his son. 
And it seems as though all the covenant promises are denied by the command. What do you do when it seems as though you've been obedient and yet those promises are now not being fulfilled, they're even being destroyed by your ongoing obedience? Well, I tell you what you do from Abraham's story. You go on believing the promises and you go on obeying the command. And you lead the consequence with God. That's what Abraham did. Just flip back with me to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. Hebrews 11 verse 17. Page 1225. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him in the promise, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. But he doesn't say, but Lord, you promised. So because you promised, I'm not going to obey what you said. Which is what we often say, isn't it? Lord, please give me an excuse for not obeying you. Oh, I know there's a promise there. I could use that. No, no, it's not that at all. He goes on obeying, he offered Isaac, in spite of the promise seeming to be denied. Look at verse 19. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Well, from the brink of. So you see, he goes on believing the promise, even though it seems to conflict in being obedient to the command. Now, That, I think, gives us the clue about how we are going to go on climbing when we often find ourselves in situations where promise and command don't seem to be together. I want to suggest to you three ways, one from each of these psalms. How do I keep going when it seems as though the promise won't be fulfilled or where it seems as though the command is too great for me to fulfill it? Firstly, in Psalm 123, back on page 637, By being people who pray. Being people who pray. Verse 1 is a very personal verse, isn't it? I lift up my eyes to you, to you whose throne is in heaven. It's expressing a conscious determination to be dependent on God and to continue in that position perseveringly until God answers. I lift up my eyes to the hills, 121, Here I lift up my eyes to God, 123, to you whose throne is in heaven. And then a little picture that helps us to understand. It's like the eyes of a slave looking to the hand of the master or the eyes of a maid looking to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us mercy. Now the slave or the maid looks to the master or the mistress both to do what the master or the mistress requires, obedience, but also to trust them, to give them what they need, their food and drink and sustenance and resources to do the work. So I think you've got here both submission and dependence. That's the picture of the pilgrim. We submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus but we know that we are totally dependent on him for all the resources to live the pilgrim lifestyle. So we are people who pray. As the eyes of the slave looks to the master, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Notice too in uh, verse 2 that he is um, the Lord our God and that his throne is in heaven. 
So it's a position of supreme authority. He's the ruler of the whole earth from his heavenly throne. That's the imagery. And the imagery portrays a reality that God sovereignly rules his world. And therefore, our eyes can confidently look to him. When you come across the word Lord there in verse 2b, our eyes look to the Lord our God. Lord is in capital letters. And of course, in our English translations, whenever we have Lord in capital letters in the Old Testament, it is Yahweh or Jehovah. Past generations thought it was best um, articulated Jehovah. Scholars today use Yahweh. We're never quite sure of that because the name was never articulated. It was too holy to mention. We have no vowels in the name. All we have is the consonants. But it is the name of covenant faithfulness. I am who I am. The God who never changes. The God who is dependable. I always say to my students, whenever you read the word Lord in capital letters, think covenant faithfulness. Think of the God who makes and keeps his promises. Because that's how the name I am who I am from which Yahweh is taken. That is how that name is used in Exodus 3 when it first appears. So this is the God who can be relied upon, the God who makes and keeps his promises. And it is this God whose throne is in heaven, so he has all authority, to whom we look for his mercy and therefore for his grace to help in time of need. Now how different that is from so much contemporary prayer and thinking about prayer where we sort of saunter into God's presence and give him our instructions. I have, um, I have given up, really, on those intercessory prayers that tell God exactly what he ought to be doing through the United Nations and exactly how he ought to be ruling the world. Uh, they are not godly prayers because you're on earth and God is in heaven, so let your words be few. And don't lecture God on how to govern his world. True prayer says, like a slave before a master, I submit myself to you, Lord. Have mercy. Have mercy. Do you notice the number of times he says that? Have mercy on us, Lord. Show us mercy. Have mercy. Because we are in a world where there is much contempt and much ridicule of God. Now, real prayer is submitting to his lordship and asking for mercy. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is a mark of our growth in godliness when we submit to God like that. And when we resist it, it is a mark of how far we have to go in that area of our life. We're seeking mercy because we have no resources to cope with living godly lives in a hostile world. God has all the resources and he will give them to those who look to him. But our eyes have to be upon him. I lift my eyes to you. I'm sure we are familiar with the contempt and the ridicule. You know how it goes. What, are you a Christian? Uh, you believe in God and in Christ and in all that stuff? You believe in heaven? Uh, you probably even believe in intelligent design, which is about the worst crime that you could possibly have in the academic world today. Uh, and I thought you were an intelligent, modern, up-to-date person. I was half in mind to get to know you better or to promote you or to give you that opportunity, but not now, not with all that ridiculous religious baggage. We have endured much ridicule from the proud, much contempt from the arrogant. There isn't a Christian who stands up for God who doesn't know that. But it sometimes tempts us to stop climbing, doesn't it? No, we come to God on the basis of privilege. We can come to God on the basis of promises. But friends, there's nothing really like pressure to make us come to God. 
and under the pressure, I lift my eyes to the one whose throne is in heaven. How do you keep climbing? By being people who pray. Secondly, Psalm 125, by being people who trust. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. Isn't that a wonderful and transparently clear statement? Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So it's not just faith, is it? It's not just faith in faith or trusting in vaguely Christian things. It's uh, trusting in the Lord himself. The Bishop of Gloucester in uh, England the other day said, the problem today is that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe it doesn't matter. And that's what we've got. Where it doesn't matter what you believe because, well, what you believe doesn't matter. How could it affect anything? He wasn't advocating that position. You'll be glad to know. He was, he was saying we should resist it. But a personal active trust in the Lord is what we really are looking at in Psalm 125. The hostility is still there, and the pressure is obviously very strong indeed. Verse 3, the scepter of the wicked is over the land, but it won't remain. Evildoers seem to be in control, even in the land that God promised his people. Now, this may refer to the apostate kings of Israel and Judah before the exile, or it may refer to the armies of occupation like Sennacherib of Assyria, and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But it looks as if the pilgrim people are backing a loser. And the danger is that they will adapt, adopt the same currency as their oppressors. Verse 3b, then the righteous might use their hands to do evil, to be tempted to answer evil with evil. But no, not if you trust in the Lord, you see. What will keep you going is by being a person who trusts those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but which endures forever. Now, what is this about? Well, look at verse 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. So the stability and the security that the people of God know is because they are aware of the fact that God really is in control. I don't know if you believe that, do you? That God is ruling the world and that he is ruling it for the interests of his kingdom and for his purposes to be fulfilled. And that prayer is really an expression of that confidence. Look how he prays in verse 4. Do God good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers Peace be upon Israel. It's a prayer for blessing, but it's also a prayer for vindication and for judgment, which are obviously two sides of the same coin. Salvation and judgment are the two sides of the same coin. And it presupposes a deep commitment to God's cause, which will always express itself in trust, trusting in the Lord. Notice, too, that we trust in the Lord, of course, by listening to his voice and believing his promises. That's why we had one, two, three. Because the promises of God are how we get to know God. It's how he reveals himself to us. So trusting in the Lord is not an abstract concept. It means taking the promises of God from Scripture and believing them, believing that they're still true, believing that he will meet them. He, he will meet the promise with his fulfillment and what happens in the life of the Christian who lives that life, the life of faith, 
is that their confidence that they cannot be shaken and that they are surrounded now and forevermore, like the mountains surrounding Jerusalem, by the protection of God, that is the confidence that that sort of faith brings. And, of course, it is unshakable. So as one of the 20th century martyrs said before he died, they may take my shirt from my back, they may take my head from my shoulders, but they cannot take my Jesus from my heart. Now there is someone who knows the security. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. They cannot be shaken. There is a man who went to his death for Christ, as have so many down the centuries, sure, unshakable, ungettable. What's the most important word there? Well, obviously, it's the word Lord, isn't it? Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Not those who have faith in faith. People say that to you. Oh, it must be wonderful to have faith. So it's some sort of strange thing that you might pick up, you know, in a supermarket or something. No, no, it's not that. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God and his word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion came home to me when a friend of mine um, several years ago now, who was a, a pastor in the south of England, was away on a ministry trip abroad when his daughter was taken very seriously ill with meningitis. And uh, he was away from his family thousands of miles, feeling completely helpless. He, he uh, wasn't in a position to travel back immediately. He had several days before he could come back with his daughter really on the brink of death. And he told me about a walk he took along the beach. And as he was walking along the beach, praying in real despair, a song came into his mind that he'd learned as a, as a teenager, as a Christian, which uh, we don't sing any longer and you may never have heard of. But it goes, I'll trust where I cannot see, Lord. I'll trust where I cannot see. No matter how dark the way may be, I'll trust where I cannot see. And that song came back into his mind and he thought to himself, there's one word in that song that is the most important word, and it's not trust, and it's not see, it's Lord. I'll trust where I cannot see, Lord. I'll trust where I cannot see, no matter how dark the day may be. Do you know the Lord like that? See, that's Christian assurance, that he'll never let you go, he'll never let you down. So how do we keep climbing? By being people who pray, by being people who trust. And what feeds our prayer and our trust, lastly, Psalm 124, is by being people who remember. People who remember. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us, the torrent would have swept over us, the raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to Yahweh, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We've escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. People who pray and people who trust, I can assure you, are people who remember. And the content of what they remember is verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord, 
the maker of heaven and earth. Now, the whole psalm, as you will see, is a testimony to that reality, to who God is. The name of the Lord speaks about the nature of the Lord. So whenever you come in the Old Testament to the name of the Lord, it's the name that reveals the nature. Now, we don't use names like that usually in our Western tradition. Uh, Many of my friends who come from other countries, especially African countries, use names to indicate the nature of the child or of the experience. So last year I had the privilege of welcoming a Tanzanian pastor to one of our um, courses, and uh, his name was Heavenly Light. Is that a great name? The Reverend Heavenly Light. Uh, And uh, that was the name his parents had given him, because I guess they saw the light of heaven in his birth. Now, I have two names, David and James. David means beloved of God, and James means a deceiver. So um, when my parents gave me those two names, I don't think they were thinking about the nature of the child particularly. Uh, David, everybody in my generation in England was called David, and James was the family name, and so I just got those two names. But in the Bible, the names reveal the nature. So trusting in the name of the Lord doesn't just mean saying, Lord, Lord, Lord. It means thinking about the character of the Lord. That means listening to his promises means obeying his commands. Now, much of the psalm, this last psalm of our trio, is a catalogue of the pilgrim's pressures. Have a look at verse 3, the anger of the enemies, which is threatening to swallow up God's people. A bit like an earthquake, they would have swallowed us alive. And those images we've seen recently of an earthquake in China remind us of the terrors of something like that. Nothing you can do can ameliorate that sudden threat which seems to spell certain destruction. That is the circumstance of verse 3. Or verse 4 and 5 emphasize the gradual building of the swirling floodwaters which will ultimately sweep everything away when it looks like the erosion of everything we worked and prayed for as though the flood is going to engulf us and the torrents sweep us down into oblivion. They're very vivid images, aren't they? These are real massive pressures and problems. Earthquake, floodwaters. Verse 6 pictures the unexpected savage attack of a wild beast who wants to tear the pilgrim with his teeth, the roaring lion seeking for someone to devour, who wants to tear him limb from limb, as we say. Quite helpless in the face of that, too. Or verse 7 talks about hidden dangers, the fowler's snare, the threat posed by an intelligent, subtle enemy who is out to trap us in any way he can and so to destroy us just as someone hunting a bird may set a snare and then whistle the bird's song and bring the bird down until it's caught. Now all of those are very real pressure dangers. Don't let's um, pass over them lightly. Uh, They're very real. Earthquake, flood, wild beasts, traps that kill us. That's what it's like to be a pilgrim in a hostile world. That was the common experience of Israel if it had not been that the Lord was on our side, verse 1. See, that's the difference that it makes, isn't it? And as we look back and see the deliverances of the Lord, it's still so for us as God's covenant people We are marked out for the special attention of the enemy sometimes as Christian people. It explains so much of church history. That's the norm for us to be under attack. We've had 200 years of abnormal 
peace in the West in the church. But normally in the two millennia of the church around the world, the church has been under attack. And if you want to make it more vivid, think of one of those Hollywood disaster movies or those Steven Spielberg films, you know, that are full of pits of snakes and vats of boiling oil and guns and earthquakes and turbulence and uh, aliens and uh, all those things which are the contemporary examples of these fears. That's exactly what Psalm 124 is about. It's a biblical written image of a Hollywood disaster movie. And it's saying when you're living in that, what do you need to know? The Lord is on your side. The Lord is on your side. So while the psalm is a catalogue of difficulties, the lovely thought is this. It's not a record of disaster. Quite the opposite. Look at verse 7. We have escaped. The snare has been broken. We have escaped. Our help is in the character of our God, the maker of heaven and earth. Fascinating, isn't it, that 7b says the snare has been broken and we've escaped. So we were right in the snare, just about to be taken. It had shut on us when here came the Lord on our side. So it's not, you see, saying that we just managed to wriggle our way out and escape and we were terribly mangled and we're only just alive. No, it's a picture of God coming to break the snare and therefore to remove the danger. People who keep climbing need to remember. Do you keep a journal? Do you write down what God's done for you? I don't do it all the time, but sometimes I've done it. Do you want to have a prayer answering book? That's a great thing to have. Prayer requests on one side, prayer answers on the other side, so that you can go back to it and remember it. Remember what God has done. Because the Lord has brought himself onto our side. That's actually the literal translation of verse 1, if the Lord had not brought himself onto our side, let Israel say, but he has. He has brought himself. And if the Lord is on our side, then there's no contest, is there? Ultimately, no contest. Let me close with a little illustration. When I was at school, we used to play soccer, and we used to play sort of pick-up games, you know, so there'd be a whole load of lads, and somebody would toss a coin, and... uh, whoever got the right side of the coin won the toss, could choose the first player. And there was one guy in our group who was absolutely brilliant at soccer. And I suppose I had a bit of a philosophical bent of mind even then, but I used to think, well, whoever wins the toss is going to choose him, and they'll win. There's no contest. He's just so much better than the rest of us. They'll win. Hardly worth playing the game. (laughs) The Lord is on our side. No contest. He'll win. Absolutely, he'll win. If he's with you and you're with him, nothing's going to stop God's purposes from being fulfilled. Why would he put himself on our side? Because his name is the Lord. Because he's the covenant faithful God of steadfast love and sovereign power. And all of that is active on the behalf of his people. So friends, to us the threats seem powerful and overwhelming. They are, humanly speaking, but what actually are they? Men, men attacking us, verse 2, beasts of prey, forces of nature. All of these things are under the sovereignty of God. The world is full of the graves of people who are going to destroy the church. Some of them are mausoleums where people go and still worship shrine of people like Lenin or Stalin, 
Some are now almost forgotten. But they were all going to destroy God's people and God's word and God's work. And they're now dust. Our help is in the name of the Lord. The church is not going to be defeated by any petty tyrants or any so-called world rulers. And certainly not by any floods and storms and earthquakes. Not even by subtle, intelligent plotting against it. Not by the media, not by the intelligentsia, not by academia. We have to remember, we have to pray, we have to trust. We have to live in the light of this revealed truth. And then we will keep climbing. Let's pray.